All right, we are going to uh, continue in our study of Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 12, coming up on the last few verses, not quite there yet. And let me pray for us. Lord, as uh, we open your word, um, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would give us comprehension to understand what you're saying, and then help us to apply these truths to our lives in a way um, that has eternal perspective. Um, Lord, spare us from making mistakes in these areas. And um, I pray especially, Lord, for those who find themselves in the situation that you talk about today, that you would pour out uh, your grace and your mercy, uh, give wisdom, um, and give, uh, give the strength to live this out in a way that glorifies you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Luke chapter 12 is actually just a, uh, a whole bunch of uh, attitudes that Jesus says a disciple should have. Here's how, how you should live out. And today, he talks about the fact that when you follow him, it may divide your house. So, here we go. Luke 12, 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and by the way, a lot of times when Jesus uses the word fire, he's talking about the final judgment. Here, in the context, he is probably talking about the fire of division, right? You need to choose for Jesus, and when you do that, it may create division. He says, and would that it were already kindled, right? Now, um, he's saying, I, I, I wish, I want this thing to start. So something has to take place first before it really, the division really uh, gets started. And uh, he says, I would that it were already kindled. Um, why does he want this to happen? For two reasons. One, because when the division takes place, people are going to get saved. Right Now, the downside is, others are going to be condemned. But the upside is, salvation will take place. But then, I wish it were already kindled. I think he has, Jesus lived with the shadow of the cross cast upon him. He lived in anticipation of that time when he would hang on the cross to pay for our sins so we could be reconciled to God, and the reason he, uh, we, we think that, that the, I, and I would that it would, uh, it were already kindled, is, is he's, he's looking to the cross, as the next verse says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this is not water baptism, this is wrath baptism. On the cross, he will endure the wrath of God in, in our place. He's our substitute. So the baptism that he is distressed over, remember in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, anticipating the cross. Here, he's anticipating the cross. Okay. Now, what this is, is he's, he put it all together, and he's going to die on the cross for our sins. And then the gospel goes out and says, sinners, come to Jesus. Trust in him, 
He died in your place. Uh, And some people hear that and they go, oh, I want to give my life to Christ. Please forgive me. And others say, I don't want to turn from my sin. I'm not interested in that. I don't want my sin forgiven. I'm fine as it is. You religious people, leave me alone. So the cross is tied into this division. Now, how, uh, how deep will the division go in the world? Will it be Jews against Gentiles? Will it be Europeans against... No, it goes to the very core of a household. Right? Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided Three against two and two against three. They will be be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, um, for many people, even in this room, these are very painful verses because they describe the situation you live in every day. Right? And your heart breaks because people in your own family do not believe in Jesus. In fact, your attitude, at least it should be, the same attitude Paul had in Romans 9, where he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, that's the word anathema, condemned, right? And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I look at my my kinsmen, and you know, you ever think of this? He's talking about the Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus, but he probably had siblings. Maybe this was a very personal verse for him with his very own brothers and sisters And he even goes so far as to say, if possible, and this is not possible, I would go to hell if it would save them. So for some of you, this is not just a, hey, let's take notes and file away another sermon. This is a very painful uh, situation that you are living in right now. By the way, when we have our discussion around the tables, could you please keep that in mind? Because for some people, this is not just a, here's my opinion on on uh, this, this verse, it, they are living in agony every day. Now, here's what I want to do. <clears throat> I want to give you four pieces of advice, biblical advice, in navigating spiritual division in a family. Okay? Four pieces of advice. Number one, don't marry the mess. Okay? And, and what I mean is... Um, and most of the time, we're going to talk about the fact that, um, you know, how, how do you navigate it when you find yourself in this? This point is, don't create the mess through marriage. If you are a believer, do not marry an unbeliever. All right, First, or 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, some of the younger folks, what, what does it mean to be yoked? Do you think of two eggs? No, it has nothing to do with eggs. Um, 
back before there were tractors, and in some countries today, they still do it this way, you would have to plow in the field with an oxen, and if you were you know, had financially well off, you had two oxen. And there was a wooden bar that went over the top of their necks and some loops underneath, and they were locked together, and you had a team of oxen. And then the plow would be attached to that, and you would walk behind the oxen. They would do the heavy lifting, and you would just steer the, the plow. Right? Now, um, if you had a big, huge ox and a little bitty ox, that's not going to work. They're going to go around in circles. Or, and I've got a picture here, whoops, there's an ox and a mule. Right? That's not going to work very well. Um, so don't be unequally yoked. Now, I've read some people who say, that verse isn't primarily about marriage, it's about business relationships. Or uh, it's about um, going to pagan temples. Yes, it's, I, I, I do agree, it has more to do uh, it, it, it's, it, it can be applied to more than just marriage. But I, I, I think it also applies to marriage. When you take a vow to stay with one another for the rest of your lives, you are now in a yoke. And Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now we'll come, come back to this, but um, we got a lot of young folks here. You're in a very vulnerable stage in high school and college because, well, love is a many splendid thing, right? It's wonderful. And it is very tempting to fall in love with an unbeliever, right? Now, here's why you're not to do that. And here we have to... to, to Let's step out of the world of Netflix, all right, into the world of, uh, we'll get theological, of biblical anthropology. Biblical anthropology. Uh, anthropology is the study of man. And the Bible has a lot to say about man. Now, biblical anthropology, let's divide man into two categories, saved and unsaved. Believer and unbeliever. Okay? So, um, here's what, the Apostle Paul says about the unbeliever. This is the heart of the unbeliever. Okay? He says, and you, you Christians, were, so at some point you came to Christ. You're either on one side or the other. And if you're on the other side, if you're not a believer, you were dead in the trespass and sins. You're, as an unbeliever, an unbeliever is spiritually dead. A believer, you, are, you have spiritual life. You're alive. Okay. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Okay. So what that's saying is the, the world is a term that means the way things operate without God at the center. So the unbeliever may be religious, may go to church, but they're controlled by worldly thinking, really secular thinking. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, 
Um, this isn't saying that every unbeliever is possessed by demons, but it is saying that Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. So an unbeliever is spiritually dead, worldly, and satanically influenced. Okay? Every unbeliever, even grandma. Right? Even the nicest lady next door. Now, I, if you're offended by this, I became a believer when I was 19 years old, and I was a pretty clean kid, had a paper out, got A's, uh, was friendly. But I look back and I go, yeah, that describes me. I'm spiritually dead. I had worldly thinking. I, I, I didn't worship Satan, but I was certainly influenced by him. Among uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's our sinful nature. That's our driving uh, heart that, that we're driven by, by the passions of our flesh, by the sinful desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, So the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I don't want you to marry that. What do you have in common with a spiritually dead, worldly, satanically influenced, fleshly driven child of wrath? Nothing. And when you are locked into that yoke, guess what? The dead ox always wins. The dead ox always drags the living ox down. Okay. That's why Paul goes on, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? He says, a believer is characterized by righteousness, an unbeliever is characterized by lawlessness. What, why would you yoke that together? Okay. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Christian, you're light. Non-Christian, not trying to insult anybody, but you're, you're dark. Okay. What accord has Christ with Belial? Who's she? No, it's a he. It's Satan. What does Christ have to do with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I think the NIV says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the implied answer is what? Nothing. Now, let's say you're a young person, you're a Christian, and you go, well, I'm thinking of dating an unbeliever, and uh, we have a lot in common. Oh, what? We both like the Packers. We both like strawberry ice cream. We both like 21 Pilots. See how hip I am? Really, you're going to build a marriage on 21 Pilots and strawberry ice cream and the Packers? You are headed for a crash. Okay. Um, it's got to be vanilla, the Bears, and <laughs> 70s <laughs> rock. <laughs> okay. Now there's a solid marriage right there. Right. Um, let me show you something else. The Apostle Paul... Writing to believers, 
says this. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Spare you that. In fact, I have never heard this verse read at a wedding. <laughs> the f- verse, verse 1 in the chapter is, he goes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I've never heard that one read at a wedding either. Okay? But here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, um, the greatest thing in the world is to serve the Lord. And he goes, some of you Corinthians, you're thinking that marriage is the only option. And I just want to let you know, Jesus wasn't married. I'm not married. Timothy wasn't married. Titus wasn't married. And it's great if you can live in that state because you can devote more time to Jesus. But if you get married, oh, you got you to gotta think about your wife, right? Now, I'm over-dramatizing here, dear, for, for dramatic effect here, okay? Now, then he goes, he, he kind of goes, but everybody has their own gift. But he's building a case. He's saying, singleness, don't, married people, don't look down on single people and think, what's wrong with you? Now you've just tossed Jesus out of the boat, right? The Apostle Paul says, if you can be single, that's great. But if you, if you, if you get married, that's great too. But I want to warn you, those who marry, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have worldly trouble. And that's to believers. Imagine the trouble you're headed for when an unbeliever and a believer are yoked together. Okay? Let, let me just put it this way. I, and I tell the college students this. I could bring before you a whole train of people who didn't follow this advice, and they would plead with you, do not marry an unbeliever. All right? So, um, hey, youth, you can talk about that uh, a little bit more during connection time. Okay? Um, So that's point number one. But now, let's say, you go, thanks a lot, Pastor Brian. You've really heaped a lot of guilt on me because I did marry an unbeliever, and it is painful. Do you have any help? Or... What about two people get married, they're not believers, and one of them becomes a believer? Or, um, what if two people get married as believers and they have little sinners? And some of them become believers and some of them don't become believers. Well, God will give you grace. Okay? Point one, don't create the situation. Point two, if you find yourself in the situation that he's describing, God will give you grace. But here's the, here's the advice. Don't give in. Don't give in to what? Don't give in to compromise. What do I mean? Well, as much as we would like to think that we are rational creatures, the truth is we are first emotional Creatures that have an incredible ability to rationalize whatever the heart wants. Some of the most logical people I've ever met who are proud of their rationality are highly driven by their emotion. And then they use their God-given gift of thinking to justify what they want. Now, when the heart loves a person... 
we have an incredible ability to justify and rationalize away our previously held religious beliefs. Okay? Fun little fact for you. None of our kids were born Christian. Okay? And we had some turbulent times on some of their journeys to Christ. I didn't share all those struggles with you. Okay? And I think every Christian parent, when faced with the trauma of an unbelieving child, faces the temptation to say, I will do anything for that child to be right with God. And unfortunately, that anything includes compromising what is biblically true. Okay, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, um, there's a whole variety of theologies that you can be tempted to embrace to, to, to get your unbelieving family member in. Okay, well, we, we talked about this about a month ago. Universalism is um, kind of a trend today. Remember Rob Bell's book, um, Love Wins? It's basically saying, hell will be emptied one day. Everybody will be saved. Now, um, what disturbed me was just how quick people were to embrace that unthinkingly. But think of the emotional uh, relief that that brings. I can't picture grandma in hell. Now, she wasn't a believer. She didn't seem to show any interest in the things of God. She swore like a sailor, but his book says that, that an option is that everybody's going to be, and pretty soon somebody says, well, I've read many books on this, and uh, Origen believed this, and Luther had some thoughts about it, and uh, Bart possibly believed in universalism. So I have, it's, it's not an unstudied position. Now universalism becomes a theological position to get grandma into heaven. In fact, John Stott did say it's just unbearable to think of an eternal hell. Therefore, um, and now John Stott, great, great theologian, was driven by that emotion. Another theological position is called easy believism. Easy believism says you're saved by faith, which is true. But now let's reduce faith to an intellectual one-time decision. So your kid grows up, has no interest in the things of God, shows no fruit. But I remember we sent him to camp one summer and he came back saying he believed in Jesus. Therefore, he's living like the devil, but he must be saved because you're saved by faith. No, 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 no. You're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. But easy believism, I've, I, I know people who have embraced it because they say, if this isn't true, then my child is going to hell. And that's an unbearable thought, so they embrace easy believism. 
Then there's, uh, let's just call it extreme ecumenism. Ecumenism is, is basically saying, um, hey, we're not the only church on the planet that's got the gospel right. There are plenty of churches that are preaching the gospel. That's, that's uh, a healthy ecumenism. Extreme ecumenism says any church that has the name church on the billboard, whew, they're in. So the child or grandma or some relative goes to a church that just doesn't, doesn't preach the gospel. Or they're super liberal. Or they're super legalistic. Or they're a cult. But if we can convince ourselves that, um, well, they go to a church, therefore all is good, that's a, that's a theology driven more by the pain of thinking that, they, that a loved one may go to hell, I can't tolerate that. Okay? Have you ever had this happen? You know a family, and they've been going to a good, solid, biblical, spiritually solid church, and then they're gone. You run into them at Walmart. Um, and go, hey, I haven't seen you guys. What's going on? Well, you know, Johnny just wouldn't go to church with us. And we, we talked to him, and he's willing to go over here. So we decided it's better for the whole family to go. You're, you're letting the dead guy choose the church? Now, maybe he picks a great church. But don't let the dead guy set the agenda for the entire family. Right. Now, let me show you, give you an illustration. You go, well, I would never do that. I, I would never compromise what is true and right for the sake of a loved one. Exhibit A, Solomon, King Solomon. God made Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, wrote most of the Proverbs, wrote Ecclesiastes, Wrote the Song of Solomon. Okay. Godly king. Here's what happens to him later in life. Now, King Solomon, and I've, I've kind of highlighted the, the, the word love and the word heart. Look how many times it appears. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart. Notice it doesn't say they'll turn away your theology, because the first thing goes is the heart, then the theology, after their gods. Solomon clung to those in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 porcupines, concubines. And his wife turned away, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart 
was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, look where this leads. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Melchum, the abomination of the Ammonites. <clears throat> so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Who is Moloch? Moloch, we have statues of Moloch. He's a, uh, an idol with his arms like this. And that's where you put the baby, the living baby, before you built the fire that burnt the baby alive. That's who Moloch is. And Solomon actually builds a shrine, a high place, to Moloch because some of his wives worshipped Moloch. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So if you say, well, I would never compromise. Um, my heart is firm. Well, you need to be on constant vigilant alert because if Solomon's heart could be turned by the people he loved, so can you. Okay? So point number two is don't give in. In fact, Solomon, it's interesting, he wrote this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, did he write that after his fall? Or did he write it before? If he wrote it before, what it tells you is you can give great wisdom like this and still fall. Right? And Jesus said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, people read that and they quickly want to clarify hate doesn't mean hate because one of the commandments is honor your father and mother. So this can't mean hate. Yes, it doesn't mean despise them and spit on them. But what it does mean is when you have a choice between I'm going to stay faithful to Jesus or compromise with my unbelieving family member, you say, no, I am putting Jesus first. Okay? So that is number two. Don't give in. Number three, don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you have been praying for an unsaved family member for years. And you're about that far from just quitting. I can't take this anymore. God's not going to save them. I'm done. Don't give up. You know who George Mueller was? He's the guy from England who built these orphanages on faith. And he prayed for 50 years for two friends to be saved. And somebody once asked him, he says, do you really believe they're going to be converted? And here was his answer. Do you think God would have kept me praying all these years if he didn't intend to save them? And right before George Mueller died, one of them trusted Christ. And right after George Mueller died, another one trusted Christ. 
Let me show you an interesting passage. This is uh, one of these encounters that Jesus has with a woman who's called a Canaanite woman. So he's up, he's out of Israel. He's up on uh, north, northwest of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon in Lebanon. Okay? And look at what it says. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So here is a woman whose daughter, not just influenced by Satan, but possessed by a demon. And her agenda is, Jesus, save her. Spiritually, save her. Now, this is a disturbing passage for some people because Jesus and the apostles rebuff her four times. Okay. First, but he did not answer her a word. For first rebuff, he gives her the silent treatment. I'm going to talk to you. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And she can hear this because uh, she responds to this conversation. So, rebuff two is the annoyed apostles. <laughs> Just irritating. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I I'm not here for Canaanites. I was sent for Israelites, not for Canaanites. It's rebu rebuff three. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He calls her a dog. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I'll take that label. Okay, and as a dog, I would just give me a scrap. Now, what's Jesus doing here? He knows her faith. He knows that whatever roadblocks he throws, she's going to just keep. Uh, she's going to keep at it. And then here comes the moment. Then Jesus answered her, "Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire." And her daughter was healed instantly. She's a great example of a parent. I refused to hand my daughter over to Satan. And she kept after Jesus, roadblock, roadblock, roadblock. No, no, deliver her. And, and in essence, she's praying. She is communicating with God. And she doesn't give up. So don't give up. Keep praying. Number four, do live it out. Do live it out. And here, 1 Peter describes the situation. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they're, they're not obedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay? Now, 
Um, the, the main point here is your life speaks loudly. Now, some people have taken this in a super literal way, and they've said, never can you speak a word, okay, without a word, never can you speak a word about the things of God to your unbelieving spouse. Well, what if he finally goes, hey, honey, you know, I've been observing you, and I, tell me about your God. And she goes, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Two syllables. She's doing charades because not allowed. Well, if you, if you push this, it doesn't say you shouldn't just talk about spiritual things. It says you're not supposed to say a word, so you should not, ladies, just never a word. It's just charades at home, like in our house. Elizabeth never talks. So, so obviously what Peter's doing, he's the play on words. If they're disobedient to the word, win them without a word. The priority is your life, and that's the platform upon which you win the right to, uh, to continue to talk about the gospel. Okay. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, then there's this controversial thing. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So some people, again, say, well, um, I'm not to, to put gold jewelry on. Silver? Yeah, that's fine. Um, just don't braid your hair. You can spend $400 on another kind of hairstyle. But, you know, again, the... the, the the purpose here is not you're absolutely forbidden from taking care of yourself. What, what it's saying is that's not to be the main focus of your life. The true beauty is your inner beauty. right? But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Now, let's not just say wives, but Husbands, parents, are we just yelling, nagging, Bible-quoting, irritable people? Or do they see Christ's character formed in us? That's the real leverage. Now, I know we're, we're short on time. I did find a, uh, an article written by a lady, Nancy Kennedy, um, who has written a book. Her husband is not a believer. So I just thought this would be encouraging, um, and I'm so old that I have to wear my glasses to read it. Okay? So she writes, But after years of praying, waiting, and hoping, so far it's still a daydream. Barry and I met and married 28 years ago. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing. He liked my then red hair and green eyes. I liked his broad shoulders and sense of humor. Plus, he was easy to talk to. As unbelievers, neither of us had a clue what our futures would be. We just, uh, we just thought a life together would be a kick. A relationship with, with Christ was the last thing on our minds. Our first year of marriage we were filled with, uh, was filled with partying, softball, and the birth of our first daughter. Then almost without warning, God drew me into a relationship with him, with God. I wrote the handbook on how not to win your spouse. 
Unfortunately for Barry, right from the start, I was one of those obnoxious Jesus freaks. I didn't share my new faith with my husband. I pushed, forced, and shoved. I didn't speak. I preached. I didn't live out my faith quietly. I trumpeted my every minute change. I'd say, see what God has done in my life? See how loving and humble I am? I prayed loudly in Barry's presence and made sure he knew he was a sinner destined for hell. I even packed gospel tracts in his lunch and added a Bible verse at the end of all my love notes. Dear sweetie pie, love you, love you, love you, and you're going to hell. To Barry's credit, he remained incredibly patient. Maybe uh, he was just tuning me out. Most of the time he avoided my religious rampages by tinkering with the car. Sometimes, though, he'd get angry and yell, stop with all the Jesus stuff. Barry told me he threw the gospel tracts away because they embarrassed him in front of his friends. Once in a while, he'd get a pained look on his face and he'd say he wanted his old wife back, Jesus free. Soon we were at odds with each other. I blamed any and all marital problems on his unsaved status. After all, if we were both Christians, life would be happily ever after. I tried even harder, blasting my Christian music, scattering open Bibles around the house, crying and pleading with him to go to church. Sometimes Barry would go, but instead of uh, enjoying him next to me, I'd sit there chewing nervously on the end of my pen, praying madly that this would be the day. Afterwards, I'd quiz him. What'd you think of the sermon? What'd you think of the music? It was okay, he'd say. Do we have any turkey at home for a sandwich? Ah, the rest of the ride home, I'd sit and fight back the tears and angry words. Why couldn't he see his need for Christ? I'd fume. Then Barry, sensing my disappointment, would pat my shoulder and say, Look, I believe in God, but not the same way you do. That was not the answer I wanted to hear. Then something unexpected happened. I'd been reading a book about prayer when suddenly uh, a flash of insight hit me. I told myself, that's it. I'm going to pray for Barry for the next 80 years, if that's what it takes, and I'm going to love him, period. That was 25 years ago, and I'm still praying and loving. But I'm no longer pining away in self-absorbed isolation, waiting desperately for my husband's salvation to bring marital fulfillment. Instead, I've decided that if it takes 80 years, then I want those 80 years to be as enjoyable as possible for both of us, despite our spiritual differences. My situation is by God's sovereign design. Reminding myself of that enables me to relax my spiritual chokehold on him. The way I see it, God has a plan for each life, and no matter how hard I try, I cannot transform someone's heart. I can't coerce, sweet talk, or plead my husband into being a Christian. In fact, when I do, it only drives him away, sometimes literally. If I start nagging him, he'll get in his truck and drive for hours. I decided long ago to accept that it's God's job to change hearts. That decision frees me to pursue my relationship with God. The other day I grabbed Barry by the shirt and yelled, Don't you see Christ in me? Struck by the irony of the question, he laughed. And to my surprise said, Yes. It helps me to remember that Barry is not my enemy. Let's pray. Lord, um, I do pray for every family in this room. Spouses may be at different places. Children may be at different places. And uh, Lord, you, you made it clear 
that the division will go down to that family level. But Lord, our prayer is for each family member who does not know you to come to you. And Lord, we, we admit our inability to make that happen. So we plead with you to do your work in hearts. We pray, Lord, that um, you would give patience, you would give fruit of the Spirit, and, Lord, that you would give salvation. So, Lord, we admit our, our dependence upon you, and we ask for you to work in our lives, in our families. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.